What are some of the most overused words of 2014? Okay, you know, every year, uh, various groups, they make up their list of the top 10 most overused words, words they'd like to see retired from popular vocabulary, words that need to be given a rest. Okay, we have ruined these words. So can you think of any? Uh, I'll, I'll give you some samples from a list I came across online, uh, six or seven of these. If any of these are your favorite, please consider not using them for a while. Okay, ridiculous, whatever, hashtag, 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 seriously, selfie, nice, totally. Any, any you, uh, of your favorites that I've stepped on so far? Okay, I'll tell you another one that was on the, the list. Here's one I wish we would retire for a while or not overuse it. It's the word awesome. Everything is awesome these days. In fact, if you saw the Lego movie, the theme song is, everything is awesome. You know, Lou Malnati's pizza, awesome. Diving catch in the end zone, awesome. A 30% off sale at Nordstrom's, awesome. U2 releases a brand new album, gives away 500 million copies for free on iTunes, awesome. Unless you don't like Bono, in which case you think it's... You know, something you'd like to get rid of, but you know, awesome this and awesome that. Uh, someone sent me a, uh, a link, a YouTube link to a communications expert, and he was complaining about the overuse of awesome. He says, if I, if I see something today that truly is awesome, what do I call it? <laughs> you know, there's, there's no word left. We've ruined the word. Well, God is truly Awesome. God is truly awesome according to the original meaning of the word. Let me give you the dictionary definition. If you haven't taken your outline uh, from your program yet, take it out and uh, just jot down this definition. It's really important to the series that we're beginning today. Awesome means inspiring an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, and fear produced by that which is grand, sublime, extremely powerful, or the like. Did you, did you catch that word fear in the middle of the definition? The Bible talks about the importance of fearing God over 150 times. Contrary to what you, you saw on the video, fearing God is a really important concept in Scripture. It's in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. We're beginning a three-part series today on the awesomeness of God and a healthy fear, an appropriate response of fear to that awesomeness. We're calling this series Untamed God, subtitle, A Healthy Fear of God. Now, if you've seen the artwork for the series, it's right on the front of your cover. Our graphic artists have, have uh, given us a picture of a lion. Now, this is no ordinary lion. This is Aslan. You know who Aslan is? If you've ever read the children's books, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the hero of the story. He's this ginormous lion. C.S. Lewis was a Christ follower. And so he intended Aslan to be seen as a, a sort of Christ figure in his story. If you know the background to the Chronicles of Narnia, there are four siblings, two brothers, two sisters. They get transported to this magical land, and they're going to be introduced to Aslan. But before they, they, they meet him, they hear about him from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Yeah, we got talking beavers. 
You're just going to have to deal with it. And one of the children, when he hears about Aslan, asks the question, well, is he quite safe? I'll feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, that you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. So another child interrupts, well, then he isn't safe? This time Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is, is God safe? Is God safe? Today we're going to consider three not-so-safe, somewhat scary attributes of God. God is not a tame kitty cat. He is an awesome lion. Yes, he is also a good lion. That's why we're talking about in the series a healthy fear of the Almighty. You might have grown up in a church tradition where, where you gained an unhealthy fear of God. We're not talking about that. But we must never casually dismiss God's awesome traits. So here are three of those attributes along with a recommended response to each one, an appropriate fear of God response on our part. Okay, the first one, if you're filling in your outline, the first one is God's power. God's power. And I'd like you to turn with me to Exodus, second book in from the front cover of your Bible, Exodus chapter 14. Going to give you a little background, backstory to the passage we're about to look at. It's about 1400 BC. God's people have been in slavery in Egypt over 400 years. And they cry out to God, and God sends them a deliverer, a fellow named, yeah, we're going to make this interactive, okay? Make sure you stay awake here. A deliverer named Moses. Okay, Moses not only leads them out of bondage, he leads them to the promised land. But initially, Pharaoh is reluctant to let them go. They are a source of free slave labor. But God has a way of convincing people. And so 10 plagues later, Pharaoh says, okay, enough, go, get out of here. And God's people take off. But no sooner do they leave than Pharaoh regrets his decision, and he sends an army to retrieve them, to get them back, an army that includes 600 charioteers. Meanwhile, at this point in the journey, God's people have reached a northern arm of the Red Sea, and they're standing there looking at the water wondering, well, how are we going to get across? Or do we have to go, go around this whole thing? And as they're standing there contemplating this dilemma, they hear the rumble of chariot wheels, and they look behind them, and there's this cloud of dust being stirred up by Pharaoh's troops. You know, what are they going to do? They cry out to God, God, help us. What happens next? Well, one of the most famous events in the Old Testament, as recorded in Exodus 14, God says to Moses, stretch your hand out over the sea. And Moses stretches his hand out. And God sends this gale force wind sweeping in from the east, a desert wind, and it parts the waters and creates a dry path for the people to cross. Now, fortunately, one of the dudes crossing that day was carrying a cell phone, and so we have a video of the event. Yeah, take, take a look at the screen here, okay? Uh, 
Ah, I love it. Especially that classic, the three chicks doing. <laughs> okay, if, if you know the movie, the movie's The Ten Commandments. 1956 Academy Award winner for Best Visual Effects. Now, now in those days, of course, they didn't, you know, they didn't have computer-generated graphics, so how did they do the parting of the Red Sea? Well, they built two huge storage tanks for water, and then they dumped the water out from opposite sides of a parking lot in Hollywood. They filmed it, and then they showed the film in reverse. That's, that's how Moses, a.k.a. Charlton Heston, that's how he, he parted the Red Sea in the movie. Now, the original Moses didn't do it that way. He called upon God, and God demonstrated his awesome power, his power. So Israel sets off through the, the Red Sea, and Pharaoh, he tells his troops, follow them. He's going to pursue them. He's, he's not about to let them get away. And this is where we pick up the story. If your Bible's open to Genesis 14, verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. When they saw the mighty hand of the Lord, of the Lord, when they saw the power of God, power over the Egyptian enemy with all his chariots, power over the forces of nature, when they saw the power of the Lord, they, they feared him. An appropriate response. They feared God. Now, how did they express that fear? Okay, how, how did they demonstrate a healthy fear of the Almighty? Well, we just finished chapter 14. Keep reading. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. Bo both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. When God's people see an awesome display of his power, they fear him. How? By engaging in worship. You know, Moses writes a quick song here, and they pull together a worship band, a few electric guitars, synthesizer or two, some drums. You know, if you drop down in verse 20 of this 15th chapter of Exodus, Miriam, Moses' sister, grabs a tambourine and gets all the ladies dancing, and they crank up the amps, and they sing from the bottom of their hearts, praise to Almighty God. And if you want to know the lyrics of the song, Chapter 15 is nothing but the song. Let me read a few excerpts to you. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I will praise him, my Father's God. I will exalt him. Verse 6, your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. Verse 8, 
By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 11, who among the gods is like you, Lord? I mean, who's like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome, awesome in glory, working wonders. You know, this is the response of God's people to his awesome power. Enthusiastic, boisterous, large group worship. Large group worship. In fact, one of the top ten commandments in the Bible. You know the top ten that include don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. One of the top ten commandments, number four to be exact, instructs us to set aside one day a week, every week, every week, for this kind of worship activity. It's called the Sabbath day. You say, I, I know all about the Sabbath day. I mean, this is the day of rest and recreation. This is the day where I get to do what, what I want to do. Now, I can shop at the outlet mall. I can watch football. I can drive my kids to a traveling sports game. I could go golfing. I could putter around in the, in the garden. I could do a weekend getaway with my wife. Yes and no. You know, yes, you are free to engage in whatever activities will refresh you, but no. No, it's not to interfere with focused time for worshiping God, with enthusiastic, boisterous, large group worship. Commandment number four reads like this. This is Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The seventh day is a Sabbath, now listen, to the Lord your God. It's to the Lord your God. In other words, the, the focus of this Sabbath day is not to be upon us and our recreational plans. The focus is to be upon God. And so if we fear God, you know, we'll carve out time every week to gather with God's people so we can celebrate his power in worship. You know, one of, one of the disturbing trends among Christ followers these days and I, I hear other pastors around the country talking about it. I've read articles on it in various Christian magazines. I even see it happening to some extent at Christ Community Church. The, the, the trend is this, whereas in days past, you know, people used to make it four out of four weekends every month for worship. And these days, you know, maybe one or two weekends a month suffices. People got other stuff to do. Like what? What could possibly bump the worship of Almighty God? A Bears game? Really? A family picnic? A ride on your bike or your boat or your golf cart or your snowmobile? Great recreational activities. But take the place of the worship of Almighty God. An awesome God deserves our corporate worship. In fact, let me say to you, if you're out of town some weekend, and you're in another city, you're away on business or vacation, find a church that worships God. Find a church that teaches his word. Don't skip out. I'm not suggesting you do this at a legalistic duty. I'm suggesting you do it because God is an awesome God who deserves his people gathering once a week to celebrate his power, his majesty. By the way, there will be great benefit to you as well. You know, when you head into your week, 
your work week, makes a huge difference. Whether you've spent time that weekend in the presence of Almighty God worshiping Him, or you've skipped out for some frivolous reason and you're now going to face the week without a sense of His presence, are you kidding me? Why would you do that to yourself? Number two, second attribute of God's. I want to look at God's holiness. We're going to go to another passage. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. It's a big book in the Old Testament, about in the middle of your Bible, so you shouldn't have a hard time finding it. It's the passage that we used in worship, if you were here at the beginning of worship today. And I want to give you the back, uh, the back story to this passage as well. Isaiah begins, verse 1, by talking about this vision of God that he's given. And it happens, he says, in the year King Uzziah died. Now, we know the year King Uzziah died. It was 740 B.C. Uh, king Uzziah had been a great king. In fact, this was a sort of golden era in the life of Israel. Not since the days of King David, King Solomon, over a century earlier, had there been so much prosperity in the land. Uzziah had been a gifted administrator. He'd been a, a powerful military figure. And so there was quite a bit of success being enjoyed, affluence, prosperity. But this prosperity came with a dark side. You know, the, the general population had become characterized by materialism and a nonstop pursuit of pleasure, heavy drinking, disregard for the poor, a lack of interest in spiritual things, God's word. Sounds like our culture today. And this is where we pick up the story. This is when Isaiah is given his vision of God. Let's read verse 1 and following. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. We've got this, you know, this group of extraordinary angelic beings. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Stop there for a moment. Holy, holy, holy. In the ancient Hebrew language, if you wanted to take a, a word and make it into a superlative, if you wanted to say this is the most something or other, the, you know, the, the holiest being in the universe in this case, you would repeat that word three times. Instead of saying the most holy or the holiest, you would say holy, holy, holy. That's what's being said of God here by these fantastic angel beings. Interestingly, throughout the scripture, there is no other attribute of God's spoken of in this way. You will never read loving, loving, loving. Even though God is the lovingest being in the universe, you just don't read that. You don't read powerful, powerful, powerful. You don't read gracious, gracious, gracious. What you read is holy, holy, holy. What is so significant? What's so important about this attribute of God? I mean, we made a hymn out of it. We sang that hymn this morning. You'll see the word holy popping up in a lot of our contemporary worship choruses. We sing it, but do we know what it means? What does it mean? It means literally set apart, distinct from. God is holy because he's set apart from the people he's created in his image. He's distinct from humanity. In what way? Two basic ways. You know, first of all, God's got supernatural characteristics we don't have. Okay, God's infinite and we're finite. 
God is the source of all life. He has life in and of himself. We depend upon him for life. God is omnipotent, and we are lacking in strength. We are vulnerable. Supernatural characteristics set God apart. But there's another sense in which God is set apart from humankind. Morally so. God is perfectly righteous. And we are tragically sinful. And this is what Isaiah recognizes about himself the minute he gets a vision of the holiness of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In this vision... Isaiah feels the doorposts of the temple shaking, and he sees it filled with smoke. Interestingly, this is very similar to a picture we get hundreds of years earlier when Moses meets with God at the mount, top of Mount Sinai. When Moses meets with God, the whole mountain shakes, and it's covered with smoke. The people are standing at the bottom of the mountain, keeping their distance. It scared the bejeebers out of them. What is Moses doing at the top of Mount Sinai? Do you recall? What is God giving him? Cried out, call it out. Ten Commandments. God's moral laws, God's standards, a reflection of God's righteous character. So isn't it interesting when Isaiah has this vision of God, you know, centuries later, it's accompanied by trembling, shaking, and smoke, just like Sinai. It brings to mind the holiness, the high moral standards of Almighty God. And Isaiah looks at his life and recognizes, I have violated those standards. This God is perfectly righteous, and I'm miserably sinful. And he calls out, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. You see that a couple of times in this passage, you know, what, what is it about unclean lips that causes Isaiah to associate his sinfulness immediately with this part of his body? Maybe it's because so much of our sinning is done with our mouths, right? When you stop and think about it, you know, so, so much of our sinning revolves around things like lying, gossiping, boasting, raging seducing, swearing, betraying. I mean, we do a lot of sinning with our mouths. Or maybe Isaiah associates his sinfulness with unclean lips because he knows that what comes out of his mouth is merely a reflection of what's going on on the inside. This is a revelation of his true character. Jesus says that out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah recognizes his sinfulness, which causes him to cry out, Woe to me, I am ruined. Bible scholars say that the translation in our English Bibles, ruined, is much too weak. It's a much stronger word. So here's the nicotine translation. Isaiah cries out, Oh crud, I'm dead meat. That's, that's a better translation there. I'm toast. 
Fortunately, Isaiah's encounter with God doesn't end on this note. Keep reading, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, these mighty angels, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, this, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I want you to note that Isaiah can't atone for his own sin. I want you to note that Isaiah is helpless to fix himself. When he cries out, I'm in trouble, I'm a sinner, God doesn't say, well, you know, this is the plan. What I'd like you to do, Isaiah, do a few good things, do this, this, and this, and then we're going to put it on the scale and it will counterbalance your bad stuff and, and you could be forgiven, your guilt can be re removed. Now, when we encounter God's awesome holiness, we not only recognize our own sinfulness, we also recognize the fact that there's nothing we can do about it. That only God can clean us up. Did you know only God can clean you up? How does God do that? Well, in the case of Isaiah, God directs an angel to take a, a fiery coal from the altar and touch it to his lips and his guilt is removed. The, the altar spoken of here, it, it's the altar where animals are sacrificed to God. Why animal sacrifices? Well, because the penalty of sin is death. And you've heard me say before, this makes perfect sense. Okay, if God is the giver, the source of life, and sin is defying God and saying, no, thank you, I'll do it my way. If sin is unplugging from the source of life, then it makes sense that the penalty is death. Now, in Old Testament times, because of his great grace, God institutes a, a system whereby he's willing to accept the death of an animal in place of the death of a person who's sinned the sacrificial system. But the whole animal sacrificial system, it comes to a halt when what big event transpires? Call it out if you know. Right, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. God eventually sends his son, the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, comes to earth, dies on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so that today, if you surrender your life to Christ, if you humbly bow your knee, if you call him your savior, the king of your life, then he'll totally cleanse you from your guilt. Now, does that mean that once you've surrendered your life to Christ, you could then live your life as you please? I mean, after all, all your sins are atoned for, so you no longer have to worry. You no longer have to fear God's awesome holiness, right? Not so fast. You know, it's true that once we've surrendered our lives to Christ, we no longer have to fear God's ultimate condemnation, that we no longer have to fear eternal death in payment for our sins. However, there's still a couple of ways in which a Christ follower ought to fear a holy God. Now, if you're taking notes, this is the response part of point two. You know, how do we respond? to the holiness of God. First, we should fear displeasing God. We should fear displeasing. You know, I frequently hear Christ followers talk as if God is always pleased with us now that we've been forgiven by Christ. You know, he sees us through Christ, and so no matter what we do, God is pleased with us. 
sorry, but the, you know, the Bible doesn't say that. That's a distortion of God's grace. In fact, throughout the New Testament, Christ followers are repeatedly told, do this you know, to please God, or don't do that to please God. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians uh, 5 verse 10 that we ought to make it our ambition in life to find out what pleases God. You know, there, there are things we can do that please Him. There are things we can do that, that displease Him. When we sin, we're not pleasing God. That should break our hearts. We fear God by wanting not to offend, not disappoint our holy God. Let me use an analogy here. You know, when I was in college, I had a favorite professor named Dr. Hawthorne. And the truth is, he was everybody's favorite professor because he, he was such a great teacher. He poured himself into it. He was passionate. He came prepared every day. He was creative. He loved his students. He was kind. And, and as a result, everybody came prepared to class. Why? Well, it wasn't because he was a taskmaster. It was because you, you just didn't want to let him down. You didn't want to disappoint him. In fact, every once in a while, you know, some student would have the audacity to show up for class not having done the homework. And Dr. Hawthorne would call on them and they'd say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't do the homework. And everybody turned and look at this culprit like, you dirtbag. Yeah? So you don't come prepared for Dr. Hawthorne? He's amazing. How could you do that to him? See, this is what it's like for a Christ follower to fear a holy God. You know, when I, I confess my sin to God on a daily basis, one of the things I have to say to him is, I can't, I can't believe I let you down. Your spirit is at work in me to make me more like Christ. And here I go and do this, or I go and do that. God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. The second way in which we express this fear toward God is we, we fear his fatherly discipline in our lives. You know, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, verse 7, says we, we ought to fear this God because if we stray from his path, he'll discipline us like a good father disciplines a child who's errant. And God uses hardship, the writer of Hebrews says, to do that. Now, it's not true that every hardship in our life is disciplined from God. But if we get off the path and we fail to recognize it, God will get our attention with hardship. And I don't know about you, but I don't need any unnecessary hardship in my life. And so my fear of God is demonstrated by the fact that when I, when I sin, I want to be quick to confess it. I want to be quick to say, and God, help me change my ways only with your help. Can I break the power of sin in my life? Can I see my behavior changed? You get it? Good. God's awesome holiness. Don't take it lightly. Third attribute, God's majesty. God's majesty. I want you to go to the last book in your Old Testament. Okay, it's the book of Malachi. So keep turning. And if you get to Matthew, the New Testament, you've gone too far. Malachi's one book before Matthew. Again, a little bit of backstory. The year is 430 B.C. 430 B.C. The nation of Israel, this is southern Israel, a.k.a. Judah. Okay, Judah is going through a time of spiritual apathy. You know, following God is kind of a yawn. People are disinterested. They don't want to hear God's word taught. They don't want to walk in obedience to him. 
And this is somewhat appalling because 150 years earlier, when that same sort of apathy had set in, God had allowed his people to be destroyed by the Babylonians and carried off into captivity. After 70 years of exile and then being allowed to return to their homeland to rebuild, you, you, you'd think they get it now. But they didn't get it. They were sliding back into that same, those same patterns of disobedience, strained from God. Who cares? And Malachi, who writes this book, he's appalled by what he sees because he believes God is a great God, a great king, a majestic God who deserves our best, who deserves our full devotion. In fact, in this four-chapter book, relatively brief book, he uses the title for God, Lord Almighty, over 20 times. Lord Almighty, Lord, majestic God, in other words. Now, this is where we pick up the story. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. God is speaking through the prophet. He says, a son honors his father, a slave his master. Well, if I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me? By the way, the word respect there in the original Hebrew, it's the word fear. So if you've got your own Bible, circle respect, draw a line to the margin, right. Where is the fear due me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, well, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. Yeah, with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Let me tell you what's going on here. So the people are bringing God an offering you know, to their worship services. Now they're an agrarian culture, so they can't put in a check. They can't put some money into an offering bag. They bring an animal from their flocks, from their herds. God had said, you know, bring me a tithe of your income, 10%. And so they're, they're supposed to bring the best animal in the flock. And instead, according to Malachi here, they're bringing God the diseased animals, the lame animals, the animals that wouldn't get a much you know, money at market anyway. In contemporary terms, where our offering is not the giving of an animal, you know, I hope you didn't bring a sheep to put in the offering bag today. You know, we're to bring a tithe of our paycheck, that first 10%. So in contemporary terms, a diseased animal would, would be like, you know, the offering bag comes by and you, well, what loose change do I have? Or it's the end of the month and I've spent most of my money on myself. What do I have left for God? Well, after I paid my bills and we ate out a little and, you know, we'll give them 50 bucks. If we added it up, it'd be a 1% tithe, a 2% tithe, nowhere near a 10% tithe of our income. God says through Malachi, yeah, try that with your governor. See how he responds. You know, contemporary terms, try that with the IRS. Your next tax season, next April, say, I'm just going to pay a portion of my taxes. 
See how the IRS responds. You say, oh, I'd never do that. Why? Because you fear the IRS tax-wise. God says, how about fearing me tithe-wise? I'm a great God. Verse 9, he says, you're pleading with me to be gracious to you, to answer your prayers, to bless your lives, and you're stiffing me? Really? You're not bringing me my tithe, and yet you're saying, God, do this, this, and this for me. Verse 10 continues, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will accept no offering from your hands. Don't give me a token, God says. If you think something is better than nothing, think again. I'm a majestic king. I deserve your best. I deserve the full tithe of your income. My name will be great, verse 11. He says this twice in verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's temple is defied. Its food is contemptible. You say, what a burden. You sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. You're just tired of church. You're tired of this talk about money and tithing and so on. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock, vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. God is an awesome king who expects to be feared, who expects to be honored. The only appropriate response to God's majesty is heartfelt obedience. See, what we do with the money that God has given us, you know, that's one of the many ways in which the Bible commands us to obey God. Now, there, there are others. Deuteronomy 6 verse 2 says that we're to fear God and teach our children to fear God by keeping all his decrees and commands so that you may enjoy long life. Now, I want to come back to that enjoy life thing in just a moment. But let me park a bit longer on this thought that if we, if we take God's commands lightly, we don't fear him. God is an awesome king who expects his word to be taken seriously, expects it to be studied, expects it to be obeyed, whether it's commands about tithing or commands about sexual purity or commands about honoring parents, or commands about forgiving those who've offended us, whatever command. When, when we fear, you know, when we obey our majestic king, he blesses us. We get to enjoy life, as that Deuteronomy verse said a moment ago. You know, with obedience comes the enjoyment, the blessing of God upon our lives. You know, this is why it's so critical, I, I would say to you, if something like tithing, you know, is not in place in, in your life, this is a great king. You need to sit down as a family, if you come with a family, and say, you know, what are we going to do about this? God deserves 
our best. And when we give him our best, he blesses us. I got a letter from a, a guy this last week that illustrates this truth. I'll wrap up with this and then we'll move into communion. This guy attended Christ Community Church for 14 years, but just recently he's been uh, transferred to another part of the country. But he says in his letter to me that while at Christ Community, he learned the blessing that comes from obeying God in this area of money. Th this is what he writes. He says, when we first moved to the St. Charles area, our family was a mess. My wife and I were on the verge of divorce. My children preferred it when I was on the road rather than at home. I had serious anger issues, but was convinced most of the problems in our marriage and family were my wife's fault. Right after we found Christ Community Church, God's Spirit started convicting me about attending one of the church's financial management classes. We call that FPU, Financial Peace University, if you're interested. He says, I learned about tithing, which was something I had no interest in, especially since we were already in financial trouble. Ultimately, God used that class in an overpowering conviction to compel me to start tithing. Now listen to this. He says, looking back, complete surrender of that which I valued most was what God had been looking for. I will spare you the long testimony, but almost immediately God transformed my heart from anger to gentleness. And that transformed my marriage and my family. I could never have imagined having the peace, marriage, and relationship with my sons that I do now. I could never have imagined having love for other people and a servant's heart either. And this guy closed his letter. Again, I got this just this past week. Closed it with a big thank you. Even stuck in a Starbucks gift card. He knows his pastor. Yes. God is awesome. God is an awesome God. And that means when you, you see his power, a healthy fear responds by giving him worship and saying, I'm going to make my schedule fit around the worship of God rather than vice versa. When you see God in all his holiness, a healthy fear responds by saying, oh God, let me confess my sin in contrition to you. Let, let, me, let me repent of it. Give me the power, the strength to say no, to break that pattern in my life. When, when you see God in all his majesty, a healthy fear responds by saying, I will walk in obedience to you. What you say in your word, I will do. I'll be totally devoted with my finances, with my sexuality, with my relationships, with whatever. I'm yours. Now, it's so appropriate that a message like this, as we've been talking about the, uh, you know, the scary side of God, so to speak, that it's concluded with a time of communion. Be because Communion is a reflection of those three attributes that we've been studying today. In fact, I want you to bow with me right now as we prepare our hearts for this communion celebration across all four campuses. Would you bow with me in prayer? And Lord God, I just want to say that at the cross, we see your power. Because it's at the cross that Jesus Christ triumphs over sin and death and hell and Satan and as victor, he's able to set us free. Deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's power. 
And at the cross, Lord God, we see your holiness. Because in your holiness, you could not let sin go unpunished. That would not be righteous. That would not be just. And so you allowed your son to take the punishment in his body on our behalf. It blows us away. It causes us, as we gather to celebrate communion, to search our own hearts for unholiness and say, God, burn this out. Take the coal from your altar. Touch it to my lips, to my life. Remove my guilt. Change my behaviors. And at the cross, oh God, we see your majesty. Because your son, before he went to the cross, taking communion at the Last Supper with his disciples, said the next time we're going to gather to celebrate this meal, this communion meal, will be in a new heaven and a new earth over which I will be king. And so we come to take communion reminding ourselves that though we live in a broken world, the king will return. And those who've been loyal, those who've been faithful, those who've been devoted to him will live with him forever and ever. So as we take this communion, we pray that you would do a recalibration of our lives, that this would be a time of uh, repentance, a time of coming back to you wholeheartedly, a time of thanksgiving for your intervention in our lives through Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.